Welcome to the Learning Hook podcast. Join our team as they explore topics across learning and development, e-learning, media production, and all those creative learning spaces in between. For us, it's the just in time, just enough, and just for you. So let's learn, connect, perform, and do something great. Welcome to the Learning Hook podcast. I'm Damala Scales-Ghosh, lead learning designer at The Learning Hook, and your host for this episode. In this podcast, I'm joined by Justin Cruikshank, our design and production manager, and Julie Gibson, CEO of HitNet. If you don't know about HitNet, an easy way to describe them is that they bring information and services to the hardest to reach people in the world. Intriguing, right? We thought so too. This got us thinking about learning more from Julie, who, along with Helen Travis, led HitNet from its early days as a university project to develop into a thriving business, leveraging co-design processes to create technology and content that bridges the digital divide. I do hope you enjoy this podcast as much as Justin and I enjoyed the talk with Julie. If you have any questions, queries or comments, please leave them on our blog or get in contact through our website. Enjoy the show. Julie, thanks so much for joining us today for this podcast. We're looking forward to talking about your work in bridging the digital divide and designing for remote and marginalised audiences. But before we get stuck into that discussion, tell us a little bit about yourself and how HitNet came into being. Thanks, Damala. Um, yeah, so I'm Julie Gibson. I'm the CEO and co-founder of HitNet. So HitNet was originally a university research program. And so when I say that I'm the co-founder, I was around when we took HitNet out of the university and set it up as an independent business, which was about six years ago. But previous to that, I joined HitNet when my family moved from Melbourne to Cairns. I'd been working in corporate IT for about 15 years before that and was looking for something a little bit different to do, feeling a little bit burnt out by the corporate world. So when my family and I got up to Cairns, I soon heard about a university program that had received some government funding for three years and were looking at doing a national rollout of technology into remote Indigenous communities. And so they were looking for somebody um, to come on board internally with a technology background. And I just thought it sounded like a really interesting and challenging opportunity. So that was about 12 years ago. Yeah, so a lot's happened during that time. And um, yeah, I certainly haven't looked back. Thanks, Julie. Um, HitNet do an amazing job working with communities who are digitally excluded. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. There's about, according to the Australian Digital Inclusion Index, there's about 3 million people in Australia that are digitally excluded. And what that means is people don't have easy access to the internet. Or if they do have easy access, they don't actually know how to use it properly. They've got digital literacy issues. So HitNet's very much about filling that gap and for engaging people with the digital economy. Because as we all know, being city-based, well-educated professionals, uh, the digital economy is, is the future of the world. And if you're not digitally capable and included, you're definitely going to be left behind. 
So with HitNet, we do have a focus on marginalised communities. And so people can be marginalised for a number of different reasons. It can be um, based on geography. It can be based on their education levels. It can be literacy. It can also be cultural and also not being able to speak English as your first language. So there's a number of different things that can marginalise people. And going back to the university program that HitNet originally started as that always did have a a focus on Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Australians. But now we we do also focus on other marginalised people in Australia, so um, refugee and new migrant groups, for example. And I think one of the unique things about what you guys do is that you work with both content and technology platform itself. So tell us a little bit about the kiosks, which are the key to what you do and how you deliver that. Yeah, so where HitNet's all about bringing information and services to the hardest to reach people. And so, as you know, governments and other organisations are now digitising their services. And so, for example, in particularly in small towns, you can no longer walk to the local post office or the local bank um, or, you know, to your local Centrelink if you need to make an inquiry regarding um, government services. So everything's gone online and so we help connect people to that digital world. And so, as you said, um, our technology platform is um, based on these what we call hubs now, uh, digital hubs. We have both indoor and outdoor The digital hub is essentially a piece of hardware, a touchscreen kiosk that has a Wi-Fi hotspot set up around it. People access the information on the touchscreen, which is publicly available, but then they also connect with their mobile devices to be able to view the information, but also download information onto their mobile phones. And one of the things that I know you've a big part of the, um, as well as the services, the government services and things like that, you've always delivered some learning and behaviour change campaign content, which it seems from reading through your report, it looks like um, people are finding really useful and really engaging with. That's of a particular relevance to our audience who are often learning design specialists, Mm. um, people working for um, government or or corporate organisations that, yeah, have a particular interest in designing um, uh, for behaviour change Mm. and and for learning. So I'm really interested in exploring a particular focus in this podcast, and that's designing for remote and marginalised audiences and how you're leveraging engagement data to inform content and platform design. So I think what's really interesting about what you guys are doing is that you're you're not only designing the content and, and responding to your audience in terms of content, but you're also doing the same with your platform, so with your hubs. It probably would be worth explaining what these hubs look like to our listeners, actually. Mm. How would you explain it? They're like a little, they kind of look a little bit robotic almost. Mm. They've kind of got a bit of personality even. They've got, they've sort of got a stand and a screen and they're sort of, the, the, your new one has actually been given a name. It's got a bit of personality, Max, Mobile Max, is that right? Yeah, that's right. So so um, just going back to um, designing things around our target audience, so We've had the indoor hubs for many years in health clinics, in, you know, community centres, libraries and so on. And the feedback we got from these communities was that it's great to have these hubs indoors, but not everybody goes into the health clinic, not everybody accesses these services. And there was also a bit of stigma in some instances around going into government buildings as well. And that 
they would actually like to have a hub that could be located outside. Mm. And so we've spent the last couple of years designing the outdoor hub that we've called Mobile Max. So he's a, a tough outdoor guy. Um, we've, we've worked with a company that specialises in tough technology called Tough Tech. <laughs> yeah, it's been quite a journey to work through various prototypes and to come up with what we think is a, is a really robust design. And so, um, so what happens is Mobile Max gets put on charge overnight. Um, he then gets wheeled outdoors to a little docking station or shelter and we've designed him so that he can be easily wheeled around by a female health worker. It doesn't have to be, you know, a burly guy. So he can be easily wheeled around. And then if he is needed at a sports carnival or the language centre for the day, he can also be wheeled there and secured in, in a different location. So he runs off a 12-hour battery. He's got the Wi-Fi hotspot as well. And he's also got the very important mobile phone recharge ports on him as well. So we see that as another way to, um, you know, to get people to keep coming back as well as to, to recharge their mobile phones. And that's all come about by the feedback that we got from the communities themselves. So in terms of the, the content, so we're, we're very much into co-creation um, as, as, a, as a white Australian, it's not up to me to determine what's going to, you know, what type of language is going to resonate with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders or people from non-English speaking backgrounds called communities. So every piece of content that we create is actually co-created with the target audience. So they're involved with the scripting, they're involved with choosing the language that's used and the types of messages that are that are conveyed. So, for example, we've we've worked with um, some communities around sexual health education, and so you know we've we've been to the community and said, well, you know, what what is the word for such and such, and so they they will explain what it is, and so we make sure that those words are used in the scripts and that they're very much involved in that process. And it's also about um, getting marginalised people on screen as well because, yeah. as, as we all know, in the media it's it's still very white and Anglo and so it's just fantastic to be able to have um, people from cold and Indigenous communities being represented in positive ways mm. on the screen rather mm. than just being the bad news story all the mm. time. It's all about yeah. the celebration of culture and creativity, which is... You know, it's it's such a treasure that we have in this country. So, great design process. I mean, knowing your audience mm. and understanding your audience and working and co-creating with your audience is is definitely best practice when it comes to design. And obviously, a little bit more time consuming, but and expensive and expensive. Yeah, mm. <laughs> but you really reap the rewards for that process. So, let's talk a little bit about um, the data that you're able to collect and that you have, like I've been reading through some of your old reports, and how you've used that to inform your content and your platform design. So we've talked a little bit about the platform design, but particularly in, like, what's different about when you're designing for marginalised communities with limited internet access? What types of data do you gather and how do you do it? I know we've talked about this co-design process, but that's also been based on, on research and data too, hasn't it? Yeah, that's right. So we capture every touch on every screen. We also have 
what's called a demographic ribbon as well. So when a person first engages with our platform, they're presented with a demographic ribbon which asks them to select a person most like them. And so there's eight different demographic characters to choose from. And so we can see from that um, demographic selection that most of our users are um, children, teenagers and young parents which actually pretty much matches the demographic in Indigenous communities, for example. Yeah, so we capture every touch and every screen and so we can see which content is resonating with people. And so, for example, we we have what's called the My Place module on each of the hubs. So every hub has their own My Place. And so that includes 12 of their locally produced videos and um we, we know that this is the sticky content that gets people coming back time and time again. It's a bit like a community notice board where, you know, if there's events that have happened at NAIDOC week, we, you know, the, the community will film them and they'll go onto the, onto the My Place module. If there's events um, happening at schools, there's often fantastic little media productions happening with schools and they all get loaded on the My Place. And you can see people keep coming back to the My Place time and time again. So also what, what we find people love to watch are inspirational stories mm. um, and real-life stories as yeah. well. So, for example, we may have a, some sort of health-related campaign. It may be around giving up smoking or it may be around people who get lung cancer and so we also, or diabetes. And so we also have stories there about people who have that chronic condition and what they've done to, you know, either give up the smokes or how they're managing their diabetes and how they're still able to live healthy and happy lives. So we don't want what we present to be all doom and gloom. Mm. Um, there is often a good outcome for people if they manage their their conditions well and improve their lifestyles. So we're very much about encouraging that sort of behaviour change. And so we can see within the learning modules that we have which videos that people are accessing and, as I said, people are, are really interested in true life stories. Presenting the learning in, in I guess, narrative formats, mm-hmm. was that a natural first step or was that something that developed out of getting a bit more feedback out of the communities that were consuming the media? Um, so not everything. We, we, you're right, we do have a lot of um, narrative, but we do have sort of more didactic um, information and so um, I think with the narrative that's very much a, a cultural thing and, and as I'm sure you're aware Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people are very much fantastic storytellers mm. and so it was great to be able to, to latch on to that um, methodology to be able to resonate with them to be able to tell those stories but for example the diabetes story is very much a sort of um, factual sort of um, mm. this is the information this is what happens and you know we actually have explanations of what is diabetes and how it affects your body so but yeah definitely the the narrative is very powerful and, and would you say that that audience demands more of that approach more of that narrative approach and i'm asking because we see this as a general trend in the kind of learning we're producing for our corporate market where uh, yeah, increasing storytelling. yeah storytelling mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. Or even the concept of the narrative, how you weave something continuous through what might actually seem quite disparate on the surface. Like, Mm. how do we tell a story of how a bunch of policies fit in and what does it mean and the way we work? Mm. What does it mean for the way we work? Mm. But the approach is to sometimes 
try and find a narrative thread through that. Mm. So, yeah, so I'm interested because you've got that experience as well on the corporate side and were you, were you exposed to that way of, of learning on the other side of the fence? No. Okay. <laughs> but that was a long time ago. So, yeah. um, no, no, no. Well, I had a very technical role then. So, mm. yeah, as I said, with the co-creation, we're very much guided um, with scripts that we develop with the communities themselves. And and one great way to, to weave particular key messages into that narrative is through what we call choice and consequence stories or choose your own adventure stories. Yeah, and so we've done um, two or three of those where the community has designed the story and then there's a few choices that you make along the way that um, then affect the outcome of that story. Mm. And so obviously those choices are around um, learning and understanding what happens. You know, for example, do you take condoms to the party? You know, how much do you drink? Do you go to the clinic next day if you've had unprotected sex? Mm. Um, so there's those key learnings woven throughout the narrative, which is powerful. And uh, Damala mentioned the data you have on, on use. Mm. Um, do you have any data on, on how people are consuming the learning content? Like, for instance, is the didactic stuff falling on its heels a little bit where the, the narrative stuff is succeeding more? Do you have any data? I, d- I would totally agree. Yeah, it, it exactly. Yeah. yeah, that's right. Most definitely the, the narrative is much more engaging for people mm. and... Um, yeah, we, we try to make the didactic information as upbeat and engaging as we can. But well, at the end of the day, you know, diabetes is diabetes and lung cancer is lung cancer and it's difficult to make that stuff sexy. So Yeah, difficult um, to dance around it. So yeah, that's it? right. Yeah. So you've just got to deliver the information. There's a lot of need as well in our marginalised communities around financial literacy as well. Mm. And so we have on our network what's called a a money channel and so that's um, a group of um, different video stories that are specifically around financial literacy and then we've also got a a module that's called young parenting and it's got tips on you know when you become a young parent and you know how you deal with a new arrival in your family and so on but the most popular, I guess, chapter of that learning module is the section on budgeting and finances. <laughs> Great. So, Great. Um, yeah, As so it's... hopefully people are looking at that before they decide to have children rather than <laughs> after when it's perhaps a little bit too late. But, yeah, um, yeah fascinating. It's, it's fascinating yeah. how it's just that one piece around budgeting and financing, finance that people mm. are really interested to learn about. So. And is that, how is that presented? Is that presented in just basically an information or is there sort of story-based um, content in there in that section um, as well? Well, it's it's very much just someone speaking to camera about, yeah. well, this is what you do. Yeah. You know, you, you're going, you know, you're going to need to spend a lot of money on X, Y and Z when you're setting up for mm-hmm. having a baby and, um, you know, you need to think ahead and be able to budget for it. And if one, you know, if... Um, the mother of the child isn't working for some time, then you need to make sure that you can manage your costs if you've only got one income coming in and just yeah. really practical yeah. tips like that. And, yeah. yeah. So that's kind of like a nice halfway. It is. Between sort it of is. a more narrative sort of choose your own adventure yeah. where you're seeing a character kind of characters play out a scenario Yeah. Um, and they're just sort of reading some good quality but you know just fairly sort of straightforward content on screen so it's a nice middle ground it is it is yeah well they present it well so um yeah they're not sort of patronizing Mm. or anything it's Mm. 
nicely presented. Mm. I'm really interested in the in the design process that led to the Mobile Max. Mm. To me, this represents kind of the ultimate in user case study and user experience design. Mm-hmm. It's because a lot of the time. Uh, these kind of problems will be tried to solve within the device. Uh, we're getting the menu wrong. Or we, we've got to make it easier for people to get into the content. Where this is literally, let's take the device somewhere else. Let's actually take the device to the audience. <laughs> yeah. Right. yeah. Uh, it's, uh, can you shed any light on the kind of design process at a high level that went into those types of decisions? And, and the reason I ask is we, we, some of our clients really struggle with how to get content to their community, well, to their people that are working in remote environments mm-hmm. uh, to the point where we've sometimes joked with clients, like, we could just print this out and hand deliver it and that might actually work out to be cheaper. Mm. So, yeah, if you're interested in, in the steps that, that led to a let's take the machine to the audience instead mm. of the other way around. Mm. And design the machine for the audience. Yeah. yeah. Well, well, it was always, that, that was always what we had in mind. Mm. And, yeah, and as I said before, it was about um, having a hub that was outdoors that was more accessible for people because we were going to be wheeling him in and out to to recharge him um you know we thought well there's the opportunity to also move him to you know other locations as well and Mm. i must admit um that wasn't necessarily our clever idea it it came about over time when Mm. people saw it and said well you know can we take that to the footy match on the weekend (laughs) as well and we said oh I'm thinking a bit nervously, oh, I guess so. But we need to, you know, we need to somehow secure secure him to something or else he could be wheeled off. <laughs> and so we've recently pilot, sorry, piloted um, Mobile Max at an Aboriginal medical service in, in Dandenong in southeast Melbourne. And that was one of the first questions. They said, we've got a, a community day coming up. You know, there's a, there's a fun run and there's a barbecue and we have lots of health promotion information there. Do you think we could take Mobile Max along? And I very hesitantly said, well, let's give it a go. Here's a, a lock and chain for you to <laughs> secure it to the marquee. And that's exactly what they did. And he, he did well and he was fine. And, yeah, he got some good use, which was great. I remember you telling me a story at one point about um, how where the the hub was placed is quite critical to mm. how it gets used. Mm-hmm. And that's I think that's really interesting too because you, you said that we've now designed something that can be taken outside, mm. um, but not only outside but even further <laughs> than just outside. That's right. Yeah, explain to our listeners a little more about that. Yeah, so that's right. So with um, the indoor models in particular, yeah, where, where they're installed because with, with those ones we bolt them to the floor or we bolt them to the wall so they're not movable and so yeah where they're located has a huge impact on how successful they are you you sort of want this balance between um, people having a little bit of privacy so for example it can be a little bit intimidating if if the hub is right next to reception at a health clinic for example or um, where we have one um, positioned in a city where it's right next to the security people who are checking people in. So, you know, those to me are deterrents for people to access the information. But then again, you also don't want it to be in a back room where people don't know that it's there. So it sort of has to have a bit of a balance between having a little bit of privacy, but um, still being 
people still being aware that it's there and remembering that it's there. So, yeah, it's it's important. And ideally we, we like to go to each of the sites before we do the installations and we like to sort of see where, where the, the people traffic flows and where's going to be a good location for it. So, for example, last year we installed a hub in Nooka, which is in southern Arnhem Land, and, and we knew we were going to be putting it somewhere around um, the, the general store or the supermarket, which is a large store. And so we were trying to work out where to put it and, you know, some places it was just going to be obstructing or some places it was sort of down a dead end. But in the end, we found the perfect place, which was next to the ATM. So, <laughs> so while people perfect. were queuing to use the ATM, which they do in Nooka because it's only actually one ATM, then um, people were will say, well, what's this thing here? And they'll start mm-hmm. using the hub. And, mm-hmm. and everybody at some stage goes goes to the ATM mm-hmm. um, as opposed to going to the doctor or whatever. Yeah. So, um, yeah, so consequently that hub has fantastic engagement. Wow. There's a lot of potential for this concept of the mobile mm-hmm. uh, learning platform sure. in a way. I mean, the, the digital divide you're describing doesn't just happen out in community or no. communities. I'm thinking about workplaces where there's one computer in the manager's office and people have to do their safety training in there. Oh, right. right? Um, okay. And so there can be that digital divide within the workplace just because of the lack of availability mm. of computers or other devices. Um, some people are reticent to do training on a phone or the, the training's not suitable mm-hmm. to be consumed on a phone. I love the idea that for, for some businesses out there, this could be the kind of thing, especially when you talk about placement, the idea that you could place this somewhere where there's the right kind of traffic in, so call it a factory, mm-hmm. right? And, and the people are more, uh, I guess, the more inclined to step up and see what's on there or, or even go and do the thing that they've been asked to do. Mm. It's, it's, it's in the right spot. Mm. Um, sure. Especially with the move to sort of shorter pieces of training mm. as well, that this idea mm. that you can just sort of quickly go and do a five-minute, you know, yeah. this or yeah. check out this video or, you know, that it's kind of... Yeah. Yeah. Don't forget to do your monthly safety refresher. Yeah. It's on the hub. You don't have to book in and we're sort of... wheeling it out. An hour, <laughs> yeah. an hour in the uh, office. No and yeah, yeah. because, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, the technology divide, yeah, it's, it's almost pervasive. Mm. If you dig, mm. just, the, just scratch the surface a little bit. It's, mm. it's quite pervasive through the entire community. Yeah, different, mm. different levels to that. Cause, yeah, definitely certain, certain professions, ones that where you're not working with a device or a, or a computer, mm-hmm. um, which many people are, but there's still many people who don't in mm. their day-to-day work. And so getting access to a computer to do their training um, mm. can be really tricky mm. uh, and tricky for then organisations in rolling that out too. Yeah, good point, JC. Mm. So I was also interested in how does the content and the technology influence each other? Is there any influence that one has on the other? So does Mobile Max influence how the content is designed? Or does the content and the type of content you, you deliver to your communities, has that influenced how Mobile Max and your other hubs have been designed? Yeah, so, for example, um, short, sharp messages are the best um, mm. to have on a public touchscreen. And so, for example, people say, well, I've got this great 30-minute documentary, and I'll say, well, that's not going to work on a publicly accessible touchscreen. People aren't going to stand there and watch a 30-minute documentary. Um, or... Um, 
going back to to young parenting that I talked about before, that was actually a 30-minute DVD that government department gave us. And so what we did is we edited it into seven or eight three-minute segments and, and made an interactive menu for that so then people could access the part of the 30-minute DVD that was of most interest to them. And so that's where we picked up that everybody's interested in budgeting and finance. So, um, yeah, so it's providing easy access, short, sharp messaging is um, what we've learned over the years is what engages people. Mm. Does that answer your question? Yeah, and it's really interesting because that's where we're heading a lot with, um, you know, contemporary workplace digital learning solutions as mm. well. Um, they may be packaged up into a bigger campaign, mm. but we're sort of, yeah, it's, it's interesting. It's, it's, it's funny, that one, because there's this almost knee-jerk reaction for people to blame this apparent reduction in attention spans. <laughs> and I don't necessarily know that we had long attention spans to begin with. <laughs> I think we're just getting better at communicating with each other and understanding the different ways and you know, preferences people have for learning and communication. So... Yeah, yeah, it depends on how interested you are in something. That that what really is what drives exactly. your attention span. Because <laughs> we're quite happy to sit and watch a two-hour movie, but you know, mm. a five-minute sort of talk by someone could get bored after one minute. Mm. It's, it's, it's no and and you're right, Demar, yeah. it's, it's important to acknowledge the difference between entertainment and learning. Mm. Um, that we can't just say we can we consume media. You know, there's all these subsets of what people are interested in. Mm. And it might be learning. Mm. But just because they, they will watch something for two hours on something they want to be entertained by doesn't necessarily mean they want to be schooled for two hours yeah. in the same format Absolutely. too. So, yeah. yeah, so it's almost like infotainment, isn't it? can be, mm. yeah. Um, there's definitely a big drive in the way that we've noticed how, how we're presenting information and what mm. we do here at the Learning Hook. Mm. Um, and it's driven by... I guess the solutions we like to work on, but also about clients increasingly too. So we see the trend. Mm. We see the trend evolving. And and it's translating into more a campaign approach. I wonder if you've done similar things, the kind of media you guys are producing where acknowledging that, okay, there's a lot to cover here, but let's space it out in weekly or monthly drops over time. So we're not just hammering someone mm. with one big message. Is mm. that, that line up with anything you guys do? Uh, a little bit. Yeah, we do do sort of... I, Sort of the shortest campaign we would do is maybe three months, but then typically things um, or the information will will stay on the platform for a good 12 months. Yeah, Yeah, usually when we're part of a campaign, there are other elements to it that other um, and other platforms that are used as well. So it's not just the HitNet hubs. Mm -hmm. You know, there can be a social media, radio, um, print campaign around it as well, and we're just one of the elements. So just another design element that we have which is a little bit different is that we've just to as a way to introduce people to the internet and connecting people to the hitnet wi-fi we've developed what's called a mobile landing page and so we work with the communities to find out from them what type of information they want to look for on the internet and so this is for inexperienced internet users so for example you know we've got feedback from up in Cairns that people wanted access to banking, they wanted access to MyGov, some health information, some shopping, some weather. And so we've made a really easy to use menu for people once they log on to the HitNet Wi-Fi. They just tap the icon for shopping or for weather 
and then it will take them either to an appropriate website or to another sub-menu that will give them more options. So this is just sort of, I guess, a way to sort of curate information that, that will be useful for them. Mm. And so this is for people who have low levels of literacy, who have trouble filtering content using Google. Mm. So we can direct them to trusted sources of information. Great. Mm. Right. Fantastic. So... Julie, what advice or tips might you like to share with organisations who are designing learning or behaviour change content for marginalised or remote communities? Well, it would just all be about co-creation. It's got to be yeah. about co-creation. It's expensive and time-consuming to do these types of campaigns, but you know, there's no other way to do it. It's not going to be effective at all if you don't um, you know, work with the target audience to create the messaging and to get the right language, that's just crucial. Mm. So. And acknowledging the cost and, and timeframes mm. involved, are there, are there any, is there anything you've learned through the process that helps hone that? Yeah, well, we've definitely found over the years that it's it's got cheaper. It doesn't have to be an expensive production, for mm. example. Mm. Um, we sometimes think that, like, grassroots sort of productions can be more accessible for people as well and they sort of think that it's more real rather mm. than something that's really, really super polished. Mm. Yeah, I must admit, we sort of a little bit at first were, were worried about putting what we saw was sort of substandard quality content out there. But then when we saw how well the My Place had been used and people are obviously just filming most of that on their phones mm. and um, we realised that people aren't so bothered about the production quality. It's about the messages. It's about, um, you know, what's happening in the stories and... Mm. and um, how real it is. Yeah. YouTube's really had a major impact on I the perception right. yes, of, that's right. of quality. That's right. And our, um, I guess that, that line we draw, the, our tolerance mm. yeah. for what would have otherwise seemed low quality. I think, I think you're right in what you said before. I think a lot of people find that real more engaging mm. and preferred in a lot of ways. Was there anything else in terms of um, meeting those, uh, that, that challenge of, of, you know, getting over the, that, the huge cost and time frame issues? Well, it's also not necessarily us having to do it all either. So what we've done over the years is form content partnerships. And so we're essentially a, a digital platform where we're constantly distributing information and services. And so there are other fantastic content producers that are out there. So, for example, um, they're, they're in remote Australia, there's these remote Indigenous media organisations that produce beautiful content. And so since we've had um, the, what we call the content partner channels on our network, we've seen the levels of engagement, particularly in remote Australia, increase um, just because that, that um, rich, very cultural content is there. Yeah, so we, we realised after some time that it doesn't have to be about us doing all the production because that's takes a long time to do as well and if you want to keep refreshing the content that's on there then you know it's good to be able to to have these content partner channels but but also it's just fantastic to be able to showcase the amazing work that's been produced in remote Australia and we're now actually um, starting to use some of these remote Indigenous media organisations to do other bits of content production for us as well rather than us dragging our own team of producers from, you know, inner city, wherever, out to the bush. We will, wherever we're going, we, we will get 
the local remote Indigenous media organisation to be involved, which is Fantastic. really rewarding. That's a win-win for everyone. Yeah, absolutely. Fantastic. And, you know, the quality is just amazing. So, for example, um, we're doing a, a project up with, um, with Menzies Health Research team in Darwin and so they've created this fantastic comic book which is around teasing and bullying of young people in communities and so we've used um, the, uh, an organisation called TEBA, T-E-A-B-B-A which is Top End Aboriginal um, Broadcasting and they're, they're doing the voiceovers for the animation characters and they're fantastic so we're just so pleased um, to, to be able to engage with them and, and, of course, to get this fantastic quality. So, Fantastic. That's great. So, um, Julie, we've just have got one last question to ask you. And you don't have to answer this one if you don't have one, but we always like to ask people, our guests, do you have a learning hook that you'd like to share with us? So either something that personally has worked for you or particularly, I think, of relevance, something that you might use in your designing content for the hubs. So when we talk about a learning hook, we often talk about something that will engage or pique someone's interest or give them a little bit of an aha moment where they realise that actually this this topic is going to be personally relevant to me. Mm. But it's not about me, though. <laughs> so you mean for my audience. Yeah. But it's, it's very much about me listening to what they have to say and um, and that's what gives me my aha moments yeah. is getting that feedback from yeah. um, either the people in communities or the people that are using the content or, you know, our customers as well. Um, they, they have great ideas too. But it's also, I guess, collecting all those different ideas and being able to synthesise it into something and, you know, and hence we come up with something like Mobile Max, which has had a lot of thought and time and effort and put into it over, you know, quite a long period of time and I probably, you know, f forget how much thought that, that had been put into that. But, yeah, it's it's very much a, a collaboration and it's it's certainly not about me coming up with all the great ideas, that's mm. for sure. It's... Um, very much a collaboration and, and just listening to people. So I don't know if that yeah. answers your question. Well, it really very much ties in with your co-creation mm. model. So, yeah, mm. it makes, Absolutely. makes sense. I yeah. think it does answer the question. I think I think the mobile Max is in itself a technological learning hook. In mm. Yeah. It does yeah. people in and gets, gets them engaged yeah. in the content. So. Mm. Absolutely. That's right. And mm. we hope on lots of different levels. So. Mm. Well, thank you, Julie. I've just made a few notes, so I thought I'd just kind of summarise a few yeah, of my key well. takeaways from, from this wonderful chat. So what I got from this is that co-creation is critical for engagement and effectiveness. I think that probably holds true for, for all design, really, where possible, if we can co-create with our audiences. That stories resonate the most with your content and with your audiences, and that um, you really work at weaving key messages through particularly choose your own adventure type stories where possible they're really effective that short sharp messages and chunking into shorter pieces of content is pretty critical to your design approach and particularly for your technology platform that longer pieces are just not going to you know it's just not feasible for people to stand around for 20 minutes watching something and that you know continually learning and being responsive 
mm. to clients and your audience um, is the way to, to keep progressing and, mm. and building a better product for everybody. Oh, I had one key takeaway to add to that, Tamala, yeah. and, and this would be for any of um, our listeners out there who do face implementation challenges in getting uh, workplace learning uh, interventions out to their people who don't have access to, to gear. I think what we've talked about today is, is one great solution to get around that, and I think there's real opportunity to look at how that might start to happen in some workplaces. Mm. Further reading, I guess we can uh, throw up some links on the blog as well and uh, if people want to see how this technology is being used and find some ideas for for people and their challenges. Yeah, so we'll put links on the blog to um, hitnet.com.au and also, Julie, if if I know that we can look at um, a simulation of a Hitnet hub on your website, where can people go and actually see a real one in if they're in Melbourne or, or in Sydney or, or in, a, in other sort of um, major centres? Well, we do have a map on our website as well which shows the locations because we do focus on more sort of marginalised communities. There aren't actually that many in the big cities, but there are a few, so you can have a look on the, the website and I'm happy to share those if people want to contact me. Great. So, Yep. So if you want to have a have a look at Max in person, it's mm. possible. Get in touch with Julie. Thanks so much, Julie, for coming down today. It's been great chatting and look forward to catching up again in the future. Thanks very much. It's been great to be here.